I was one of those kids who was really into detectives. I don't know if that's a type or that's just me. It might be a type. I hope it's a type. Big Sherlock Holmes guy. Big Encyclopedia Brown guy. I think that the idea from a very early age, I was kind of entranced by the idea of like figuring something out that someone else couldn't figure out. The sort of the trick of it. Like I was also into this is nerdy, but I was also into like magic, like, you know, like, you know, illusion. Like I think it all goes together, right? This kind of like um, interest in, in how things are concealed and how things are revealed and the sort of drama behind both concealing things and revealing things as a sort of meta thing. You're listening to Exposing the Invisible, interviews with investigators about their methods, their communities, and what motivates them to keep going. My name is Avi Asher Shapiro. I'm a reporter for the Thompson Reuters Foundation. I cover the intersection of technology and human rights. I originally got into journalism in a meandering roundabout way. I wanted to pursue graduate studies in in sort of Middle East studies, Arab studies. And I was living in Egypt, working on my Arabic and, and, and sort of doing research. And and it was around the time of the Arab Spring. And I sort of realized I didn't have the attention span for uh, long-term academic work. And I was sort of caught up in all the exciting things that were happening at the time. So I sort of took a a bank shot into journalism. When I I left the region and returned to the United States, I was sort of looking, casting about for undercovered stories that I could write about. I'm from Northern California. I grew up outside of Silicon Valley, and I had always kind of paid attention with one eye open to what was going on there. But when I returned to the U.S. back then, I, I, I sort of began to realize that there was a massive open lane in taking a critical look at tech basically my first entree into it was similar to, to what I had been looking at in, in, in Egypt was sort of economic questions. So I started looking at uh, sort of labor issues around technology and, and that took me to, to Uber, which was sort of the first big thing I wrote about in, in tech. I mean, now everyone is so critical of uh, the labor records of a lot of these tech companies. I mean, the Amazon workers peeing in bottles is like a meme, right? But, you know, if you can cast your mind back to back then that, if you read the first kind of couple New York Times stories about Uber, you'll remember that the, the discourse was very, very different. I th- I detected a lot of undercover dynamics. So it kind of launched me into that first starting to report on Uber. And, and that led me to basically do a lot of uh, reporting on tech companies, um, not just tech companies, but, but, but that's been a strain or a, a thread that's woven through the last kind of 10 years of my work. One of the issues with Silicon Valley and journalism is that, at least in the beginning, I think there was a lot of cultural resonance between the type of people who go into journalism and the type of people who go into tech. For me, it was obvious that there was a sort of blind spot there and that the kinds of people that tech companies might be doing harm to, you know, they weren't really at the front of the story, right? So the, the story was always about the user of the tech, right? how cool it was to like summon an Uber or how like awesome it was to use an iPhone. And then the back of the story was like the, the, the driver or the cobalt miner or whatever. Right. Like innovation doesn't hurt anyone. Right. Like it's not like an oil company. Like it's a, 
it's an internet company, right? Like, I mean, and all these things sound so obvious now, like at this moment, because it's like, duh, like we've all, we've all seen the Amazon peeing in bottle stuff. We've all heard about the Uber driver sleeping in their car. But like, I think if you do cast your mind back to that moment of 10 or 11 years ago, we've gone through a total sea change in, in how the mainstream press covers this stuff. I wrote a piece for The Intercept in like 20, it must've been 2017. That was about how Uber dealt with uh, women drivers who complained that they'd been sexually assaulted on the job. And the question the story was trying to ask was like, you know, I, I, again, right? So a lot of the stories before that had been about like, what about the passengers? Are they safe? Are the passengers safe? Which is fair, right? But then it was sort of like, well, okay, but like, what? A, and it was, a, there was a lot of sensational stories in the press, which were like, oh, like predator Uber driver, like takes, you know, kidnaps child. And like, you know, that was true, right? There were Uber drivers who did terrible things, but like, you know, these, there was also like people who were stuck at work, working for Uber and they were like, faced a lot of issues so like i the question i was trying to answer was like we've got these thousands of women in these cars on the road with strangers like what 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 what, what how, how is what systems have been built to protect them if if any at all and and how do people feel about that so you know many months of talking to many many women and you know who had these experiences and looking at all of the uh, documents that they had with their their conversations with uber you, you know wouldn't be surprised like you know it wasn't a super flattering portrait Uber, I heard later on that like Uber's like top PR people like called like I think all, all maybe all the way up to the editor in chief and to like really disputed like the very like they, they the very like uh, premise of the article. Um, to their credit, I don't think I even heard about it till later after it ran. You know, I was that's all to say like I I think you know yeah I think that when you touch certain nerves. I think one of the differences, I guess, between some of these companies and some other companies that get negative coverage is, you know, there's a thin skinness. I think, you know, if you sometimes if you write about like a defense contractor or you write about like a lobbying firm or like someone who's sort of just like used, like they're just kind of like, yeah, this is part of our, we're going to get critical coverage. People are going to call us all sorts of names and we just soldier on. But like when you have these companies, this business model is to sell consumer goods and to a certain extent, they're very concerned about uh, how consumers view them. Yeah, like they'll go to war over certain things, you know, and they also like they staff up to do that. You know, they the, there's a reason why that Amazon's top uh, PR guy is, you know, used to be the Obama's press secretary. You know, like they, 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 they prepare for these things. No one's ever tried to sue me. No one's ever like threatened me. I think it's just been like, you know. In a certain sense, like that's part of the combat, you know, their, their job is to make themselves look really good. And your job is to sort of figure out uh, what's true and what's not true. And often you're at odds because the facts don't make them look good. So there you are. And that's, that's the game. So I went to this like really annoying school where there's like a lot of homework and like all of the students like did it all. And I was kind of like pissed off about like how much I was the editor in chief of my high school newspaper. Felt like they were trying to keep us busy, not not to learn, but to keep us busy. And also like because of how much homework there was, there was like a lot of cheating. One person would do the homework and then like they would just pass it around and people would just copy the other person's homework. It was like a racket. 
And so as editor-in-chief of the newspaper, I thought, like, you know, if the, if the school knew how much cheating was going on, maybe they had realized that the homework load is totally unreasonable because it's leading to cheating. So I, like, did, like, an investigation where I, like, just walked around the school and was like, do you cheat on your homework? Do you cheat on your homework? And I asked, like, 50 people, and they were all like, yeah, we cheat on our homework. Obviously. We, everyone does. And so then I put, like, a front page story in the, in the school poop newspaper, which was, like, everyone cheats on their homework all the time and it became a big deal like the school board had a meeting like there was a whole thing and people got really upset and my parents got upset and it was what i okay like the the lesson from this though i would say is that taking something that everyone knew like everyone knew this thing but like everyone knew it in like a diffuse way it wasn't like put in one place that was authoritative so all i did was do that and that was like that freaked people out and I feel like a lot of journalism is sort of doing that. It's like everyone knows that like it totally s- can suck to be an Uber driver. But then once like someone writes a definitive article that like ex- puts it all in one place, all of a sudden like the company's on the back foot, right? Even though like nothing is really new in the sense, someone just like went out, collected it, verified it, put it in one place, right? So I do think a lot of journalism is doing that. And I think and a lot of investigating is doing that. But yeah, it was fun, I guess. I don't know. I should go find... This is before the internet. So the funny thing about this story is like, this this thing doesn't exist anymore. It's not like I can Google this story, right? I graduated high school in 2006. Our school newspaper wasn't on the internet. So I could be making this all up for all you know. Um, yeah. I think storytelling is the most interesting part of journalism. It's the hardest part of journalism. It's the most creative part of journalism. It's also the part of journalism that is most often flubbed and overlooked, right? I mean, there's like a whole school of journalism now, which is just like, fuck storytelling, bullet points, right? Like people, so like Axios will publish an investigation that is just like bullet points. Like, and they'll actually be like crazy new stuff they've found, but they're like, eh, like who cares about the story? Let's just bullet point it. And they do like they I can't recently they had some massive thing about like Chinese spies. There was all these like crazy revelations in it, but like they presented it like a PowerPoint. So I think the storytelling part um, for me is very, very important. It's the highest level of the art. Uh, It's obviously the way you get most people to care about things. You know, I mean, it's complicated, right? I mean, because like the storytelling is also the part of it that's the entertainment value, right? And there's a business side to journalism. So, you know, perhaps some of the reason why storytelling has become an important part of journalism is because of selling a magazine story, sensationalizing it, making it engaging to read. When I, I guess I would say when I'm like looking into something, I am thinking the entire time about what is the narrative here? What is the story here? How, how will this detail that I'm in the middle of uncovering, how will I unfurl that in a, when I tell that story? And if I'm doing it for a wire story, I'm probably just thinking about it as when I tell my friends, like about what I did. I still think in terms of like reveals, tension and contradiction and all the tools of um, storytelling. Like I, so I, I published a piece last week, uh, which was, looking at this kind of quiet rollout in American prisons and jails of natural language processing surveillance of uh, inmate communications, which um, 
basically uh, we, a colleague and I have like kind of uncovered that there's this, all these pilot programs kind of percolating all around the US to run all the phone calls that people have who are incarcerated with their loved ones outside or whomever outside through an NLP processing program and flag it for all sorts of you know slang words that could be if they're in a gang and basically analyze all of their communications using uh, a sort of black box ai system that could uh, get people into trouble and no one had really written that much about it or the thing we had uncovered is that congress had sort of quietly pushed the the green button to, to expand this program as a storyteller like that's not very interesting unless i can find a person who that happened to like it's kind of interesting but like, if you go to a party and tell that story and you're like, this thing is happening, like that's, that's only part of the story that you're telling at the party. Like someone's like, okay, the technology is not a character. It can never be a character, right? Like you need a human. So what is, that's all to say, like, I'm in a mad dash to find someone who's been impacted by this technology, which is hard and I'll probably fail. But like, you know, the, 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 I think that maybe some kind of investigators <clears throat> would sort of see their job being done at finding this tech, right? And for me, like, I really need to find a person whose life has intersected with it. I wrote a piece last year for, for Harper's Magazine, which was looking at the growth of this new financial product called the Income Share Agreement, which is something that's being uh, used uh, all over the world, but increasingly in the United States as a way for people to finance their education. And basically they sell a percentage of their future earnings to investors in exchange for access to education. I, you know, I identified pretty easily that I wanted to look at this financial product. It hadn't been written about. It was all these interesting uh, ideological claims that were being made by this financial product about what motivates students, you know, what motivates institutions, you know, but it's nothing without a person, right? And so I spent months and months and months trying to find the right person to help explain that's that product. You know, I wish that I had a uh, really concise way of saying how it worked. I talked to dozens and dozens of people and I found someone who was the combination of incredibly open, incredibly, who had a fascinating life story, was honest. He had been screwed over by this uh, financial product and he had documents to prove it. But he also wasn't chomping at the bit to to go after this company. Like I found him, he didn't find me. And I found him and he was kind of like that exact level of like, I could talk about this, but you know, I don't know. And then like it kind of developed in that way where it was a, it was a natural level of interest. He wasn't like too motivated to be the character. Yeah, it just all sort of clicked. And and I don't know. It's a special alchemy to it. I think I've done a lot of that with like like when I've written about tech, like a gig gig economy stuff, you have to spend a lot of time finding the right people to talk about that as well. A lot of it honestly boils down to people who have documentation. I guess I would say like, you know, no matter how good your character is, like they need, you need to be sure they're not lying to you. And if you actually think about like proving to someone that something happened to you, like it can be kind of hard, right? Like, oh, this thing happened to me. I swear. Okay, did you text someone about it at the time? Are there emails? If you actually peel back the layers of proving that a thing happened to you, it can become quite difficult, right? So a lot of it, I guess, boils down to, to someone, you know, someone has to be able to prove it. 
yeah, I mean, it's a mess. It's really hard. It's the hardest thing. It's obviously the hardest part of, of this job is it's easy enough to like, you know, yeah, find some contract on the internet, find someone who got caught up in that system. Yeah. I mean, that's what I spend most of my time trying to, to, to figure out. Yeah. So there's all sorts of ways that you can find people uh, for things. And it really depends on what's going on. So like for stories I've done about like gig workers, I've gone uh, to basically through like three routes. One is like there are obviously advocacy organizations that uh, and, and, and pressure groups that, that have people. And, and that can be good if you're looking for a very specific situation, right? But if you're looking for people who don't have, who have a new situation, it's not, or like, you know, if you're trying to uncover something new, like that might not be the best place to look. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a very concrete example. But some time ago, uh, Amazon, announced that they're going to put these uh cameras in all their delivery vans they're these they're called uh, they're, this company called netrodyne makes a four lens ai powered camera that they put in the delivery van detect detect all sorts of things uh that the driver might be doing wrong from yawning to looking at their phone and i was like in a mad dash to find people who had actually like uh dealt with these cameras but they had just been rolled out in that situation, like I that that finding those people, Reddit, that's where you find those people. So like I was on Reddit for hours and hours and hours, uh, messaging every single person in the Amazon forums, uh, drivers forums, um, trying to convince them to give me their phone number, if they would, trying to convince them to send me a uh, a picture of their badge so I could verify that they're real, and then if that was true, get them emails from their dispatch explaining that they had been to be subject to this new type of surveillance. And that led me to writing a story about drivers who quit Amazon because they didn't want to be surveilled by this new camera. You know, this was like within 48 hours of the new tech people I talked to were not like part of any union organizers. They're just guys who were like, Oh my God, this camera is really creepy. I'm going to go on Reddit and complain. And then like, I find that guy quickly. You know, there's no one size fits all, right? I mean, I think, you know, lawyers are always an amazing place to find characters. People filing lawsuits are awesome, you know, but like you got to be the first one to know about the lawsuit, but there's a million documents generated by legal procedures. I actually really like writing about stories that involve lawsuits because I like, gives you like a, you know, some ground to stand on. People have made claims in legal papers. But yeah, I mean, finding story, finding characters is it's super tough, especially in the pandemic times it's been nuts the extent to which i am good at this i think it's because it doesn't feel like work you know i mean i think it it is work in the sense of like most of the time i guess i probably prefer to be like having a beer with a friend and like talking about like seinfeld or something like sure like that's an easier way to spend an afternoon but like when I'm like working on a story and I'm really excited about it, like it does feel like something I might do anyway. I genuinely want to know when I talk to a lot of other people who have other kinds of jobs, I think what motivates them often is like outside of money is like kind of fear. It's like, well, I need to do this. Like or I'll be, or I'll be shamed or I'll be, um, I'll be shamed by my superiors or I'll, I'll, I'll look silly in front of my colleagues or, you know, maybe the positive side will be like, I'll be praised. 
So like the thing about this work is like that stuff is all in the background. Like it's a public, you're doing, it's a public act. It's a performance. Like you are getting ready to present information to the public. And that is what you're doing. I, I'm, I'm a violinist. A big part of my childhood was, was musical performance, you know, so maybe, maybe I like that, you know, maybe I think the thing that when I practice, I used to practice a lot, like, you know, an hour and a half a day, which was a lot for a teenager, you know, and I was my big thing, you know, besides creating scandals in the student newspaper. And like, I did, I wanted my teacher to like, be like, oh yeah, that box sounds really good. Like, sure. But the real thing I wanted to do was like, play the concert. That's why I practiced. Cause I was like, I need to like crush this Beethoven in front of like the school because i'll be i mean this sounds so nerdy in retrospect but whatever like it's you know classical music is cool <laughs> um, i think uh anyway so i think there's something there right i think that like i seek out a sort of like task that is like i'll be held accountable by more than just like my boss or my parents but like there's a public accountability you're in dialogue with a larger audience i think that's a part of journalism that's really huge for me it's not just like any old thing, right? Like I, I care deeply about taking down those who abuse their power. Like it's a corny thing, but like, that's the only reason I'm in this, like the deep, deep kind of loathing for institutions that abuse their power for people who think they can spend all day fucking people over and then go home and like not bring that home with them. Like that kind of, so anyway, it's, it's not just about like, get it doing something for the public it's about like doing a certain type of thing for the public that um you know i wouldn't want to like write a profile of like some celebrity or something it just wouldn't wouldn't really be for me yeah i've been accused uh from time to time of like over reporting I've been told sometimes by editors, like, you have it, it's done. And I'll be like, but maybe I don't. Like, maybe we need to make a couple more phone calls or maybe we need to read a couple more documents. But I don't know. It really catches you like a fever, right? It's very hard to describe. I would not describe myself as one of these workaholic types. Like, I like to chill. I like my free time. I'm also one of these people who, like, yeah, like, once I've gotten, like, pulled in by something, I will keep going. So I would, my work investigative style is definitely like fits and like of 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 of, of met a lot of work uh staying up late working on things not being able to put stuff down and then long periods of like whatever like i hope i have another idea sometime so i think the people who are the best investigators are people who are really methodical and are constantly sort of like checking every brick you know, one of the best pieces of, of, of investigative journalism ever is like this piece. I think it won the Pulitzer Prize in like 2015 or 2016. It was a, a piece in the New York Times uh, about Walmart in Mexico. And it's by David Barstow and Alexander Shanique. They basically discovered that Walmart had been systematically bribing its way into all of its facilities in Mexico. Basically, like Walmart. And it was known at the highest levels of like Walmart. It had a business strategy in Mexico that was just like nuts. Like they were just like, they were just paying off politicians, paying off, like they're just like the whole way they're operating the country was just like illegal 10,000 ways. And like the way that they proved it 
was just like they went to like every single municipality over the course of two years and like slowly like reconstructed what happened and they sh I, I got to see the binders they used they had dozens of binders that were just full of maps of all the walmarts in mexico that they like pulled week after week after week and if you meet these two people they're like chillest people in the world they have no like frantic jewish energy like me they're just like really zen the, you know this one the pulitzer prize i think that's the people who really crush it i don't think it's like the frenetic like rabbit hole people i think it's the people who like see a thing and they like see two years down the line i'm gonna crack this case if i do these seventeen thousand steps and then they go do those steps and they make their chance of success really high because they think thought about it really carefully and then they rinse and repeat that for their whole careers those are the champs i'll never be that person but i i see i see the champs and i respect it for sure yeah Every time I work in a team, uh, and I, I, I wonder, like, how do I ever not work in a team? Like, because I, we'll, I'll, I'll notice, hey, wait, didn't they say this? And we wrote this? And they'll be like, oh, shit, thank you for noticing that. And then they'll say, like, wait, but you wrote this. And, they, and like, the, the self, like, the, 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 the ability to self-police um, when you have two or more people is just huge. So it's, it's kind of terrifying to imagine flying alone. But more broadly than that, I think, I do see myself as part of a kind of very high uber loose collection of kind of journalists of my generation who are trying to take on kind of powerful interests in 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 the US but it, it's super loose. I'm not like part I mean I just have like people I'm like simpatico with I guess like I'm like I like their stories, people write me notes they like my stories. I'm not part of any sort of like community of sharing um information journalism is a competitive sport right like that that's the thing right so it, it's like it's a collaborative sport it's a competitive sport it's team sport it's an individual sport it's not really a sport i guess i keep saying the word sport but it's not really a sport but you know you know what i mean like there's some some competitive dimensions built into it and, and, and that, that, that do make collaboration or at least being part of a community where you're sharing your ideas, like you've got to be a bit guarded, guarded. I feel like a lot of times I talk to reporters that I like know and like know me. I'm not one of these people, but like there are a lot of people who are like, yeah, I'm working on this. And I can't tell you about it. I'm like, really? Like, what do you think I'm going to do here? Like burn it all down, steal your idea, never talk to you again. Like, like, but, but that is in the water. Like that is kind of part of the culture of a lot of journalists. The, the, the few times in my life that I've surreptitiously recorded something, I felt so, so cool. A couple times I have like walked into someone's office with like a phone recording in my pocket without in, in states where this is legal. And it's that I, that's what I always imagined being like a private investigator to be like, you're just doing that all the time. Cause the thing about being a journalist, you know, unless you go through all these sort of ethical hoops of going undercover, you have to identify yourself as a journalist from the jump. You really can't lie to people. And I'm fine with that. I never lie to people. I always identify myself as a journalist. But I always wonder what horizons would be open to me if I could lie to people. It's a whole different world, right? Like, if I could, like, come up with a persona, if I could create a fake, like, 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 like what the PI, like, the you know, Black Cube and, like, these groups 
do to get information is a totally different toolkit. I mean, I mean, there are pluses and minuses to both toolkits. I think there are plenty of people who would talk to a journalist, but would not talk to some weird person pretending to be like a Tajik, you know, businessman with like oil interests and like a contract. Who knows, right? But I, I have always thought about like that toolkit and how that, that would be kind of, kind of fun, right? If you're doing it for the right reasons. I think there's like two things that are true at once, which is there's a tremendous amount of information that is pretty publicly available that hasn't been snatched off the tree and like, you know, put in baked in the cake and presented as a story. But at the same time, I think there's this, I say this all the time to people, I think there's a massive illusion generated by the internet, which is that most important information is on it in some form or another. And I think that that illusion is really dangerous, especially for like younger generation of journalists. I got my first smartphone after university. You know, I'm, I'm a millennial. You know, I got on Twitter for the first time in like 2013. Like I'm not like someone, I'm not like a person who's like super internet-y in terms of the journalist spectrum. There's an incredible amount of information that can be gleaned from talking to people and the stuff that's not on the internet but some people just just tell you we were talking to a source recently for this story looking at uh, uh, the use of ai in prisons and jails and he just mentioned very casually like a place in the country where something very interesting was going on this was not a secret there's no record of this fact on the internet it doesn't exist on the entire internet but it is a thing that is known by a guy. It's not a secret. It's just no one had asked him before. And he was like, oh, yeah, oh, right? And I looked, I was like, how could I have missed this important fact in the thing that I'm currently investigating? But there's a lot of things that are in that category. Those facts are like, a lot of the juice is there. What I really admire in like the best investigative journalism that I've consumed. And when I think about it most recently, the thing that jumps to mind for me is, is bad blood. Uh, you know, the John Carreyrou, the Wall Street Journal reporter's book on, on Theranos is, you know, the people who have the guts to swim against the stream. The story of that story Basically, you know, Theranos had been, it gotten the New Yorker treatment, right? So literally the, the, the company had been praised in the New Yorker, which is an organization that's famous for its fact check, right? So they like, you know, from the outside, it's like this company has been, it's not only been vetted by the investors. It's not only been on the front of Fortune magazine, which who cares, right? That's just who you know. It's been, in, it's, it's been praised in the New Yorker, which has the most rigorous fact checking event. So to look at a company like that and decide, actually, it's a fraud. That's the stuff that just blows my mind. I am so impressed by that. And that happens all the time. And that's what I think is so important about investigative journalism is that's countervailing force in the world where like as an institution, like think about it really as an institution, not just like a set of people, but as like a wind, like a certain force in the world. And you have all these other forces in the world, incentive structures, and a lot of them are, you know, money, you know, capital, popularity, democracy, you know, they all have their own incentive structures to, to promote or to 
to undermine certain institutions. And at its best, like journalism shows up as this like separate set of forces. Like, well, let's let's stress test this, guys, against our own practices, which are not better or worse than than others, but they just have their own ways. Exposing the Invisible is a podcast by Tactical Tech with funding from the European Commission. Interview and production by Joe Barrett. From Tactical Tech, the Exposing the Invisible team is me, Wael Iskander, Laura Ranka, Marek Dushinsky, and Christy Lang.